Welcome to the Good Neighbours podcast. This is a series on the UK and its relations with the EU and European countries after Brexit. We look at the EU-UK relationship, consider how the relationship compares with the EU's relations with its other neighbours, and discuss the UK's new bilateral relations in Europe. I'm Hussein Kassin, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and Changing Europe. And I'm Dr Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate on Negotiating the Future. Today, we're looking at the EU relations with its neighbours, both as a way of thinking about the UK's current relationship with the EU and how it might evolve, and at the EU's interaction with European countries that don't aspire to EU membership. We're delighted to welcome three distinguished guests. John Eric Fossum, Professor in Political Science at ARENA, the Centre for European Studies at the University of Oslo. He is well known for his work on democracy, constitutionalism, Europeanization of the nation-state, and the EU's differentiated relationships with its neighbours. Merete Dotterud-Lyron is a senior researcher at Cicero, the Centre for International Climate and Environmental Research in Oslo. She specialises in energy and climate. And Chris Lord is Professor at ARENA, the Centre for European Studies at the University of Oslo. He is a political theorist who investigates democracy, legitimacy and the European Union, on which subjects he has published widely. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast on Norway's relationship with the EU and what lessons there might be for the UK. Uh, can we start by asking you how you would describe Norway's relationship with the EU Uh, John Eric, I turn to you first, perhaps. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yes, actually, <laughs> Norway's relationship is um, quite distinctive in a sense. I mean, as part of the uh, European Economic Area Agreement, it is as close to a non-member as it can possibly be, because Norway has generally been trying to be involved in as many EU programs uh, as possible. And it is important also to to underline the uh, particular character of the European Economic Area Agreement, because it um, situates uh, uh, Norway and the other two EA countries, uh, uh, Liechtenstein and Iceland, within the EU's internal market. Not the customs union, but but otherwise with full uh, full full uh, access to the, or participation in, in all the four freedoms of the EU. So that The EU's most integrated aspect is also where these countries are are integrated, and this is through what they call dynamic homogeneity, meaning that all the provisions and so on are being uh, constantly uh, updated uh, whenever they are relevant for the internal market. How this works, even if the actual framework agreement hasn't been textually updated, which is also an interesting thing, so that. Um, the text of the EA agreement doesn't actually mirror now what you have in the EU treaties. And the same thing applies for Schengen, because of course, Norway is also an associated member of Schengen, meaning that we are inside the EU's borders with responsibility for border controls. So so it's therefore a very close and very unusual form of, of relationship. And it consists of at least 70 agree, uh, different agreements. Thank you. Uh, why has Norway opted for this kind of relationship? I think in retrospect, it's called a kind of a national compromise. You had two popular referenda rejections of EU membership in around 53-47%. Um, so that there's a clear rejection of EU membership. At the same time, it is clearly recognized of the interdependence and also not the least the fact that the other main Nordic uh, states 
Denmark, um, Finland, and uh, and and uh, Sweden are also full members of the EU, and Iceland is is affiliated through the EA agreement. So the close the closest collaborators in also in the Nordic Union are part of the EU, and of course the the pattern of of economic interdependence is enormous. But the EU is Norway's largest trade partner. The UK itself was Norway's single largest trade partner. It's a kind of um, a bind or a, or a conundrum that Norway is facing. It needs to have full access. It needs to have the predictability of stable rules and so on that, that would come from the EU at the same time that you have a population that says, no, we do not want to be members. So this has then been worked out as some kind of a compromise. But nobody in 1994, when this was started, had any idea of how dynamic and comprehensive it would be because, of course, it has evolved as the EU has expanded, not only in terms of number of provisions and so on, but also in breadth in terms of more mem- more members. Uh, so that the, after as, as the EU expands with number of members, so does the EEA ex- uh, agreement also, of course, in order to be compatible with the EU. So it has to mirror uh, this in terms of the expansion of the internal market. And do you think that that still means the EEA is robust as a framework? I I mean, it has proven remarkably robust. A lot of people thought in 94 that it was a temporary compromise. Some people said it's merely a waiting room for EU membership. But uh, thus far, it has has survived. This doesn't guarantee anything for the future. But uh, I think a lot of people were surprised that it has uh, has lasted. And it has popular support. Polls are talking about two-thirds of the population basically opting for this, saying that this is a sort of kind of arrangement that they can live with under the circumstances. The obvious difficulty is that to get such influence over so many European Union policies, and certainly to to have an arrangement uh, based on dynamic convergence, Norway has to be something of a rule taker. I think we we need to be careful. This is this is a slow one. In many ways, the EEA is a highly sophisticated way of involving a non-member state in European Union policy making. Norway is heavily involved in all of the expert committees in preparing the legislation and in preparing the implementing instructions and so on and so forth. I mean, of of course, it doesn't get representation at the political level in the Council of Ministers and co-repair in the European Parliament. And that's a huge, huge, huge loss of influence. But at the same time, um, there are opportunities to to, to shape the proposals within the um, kind of technical side of the policy making process i mean this however obviously has obvious disadvantages like it, one 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 implication is that norway's relationship with the eu is highly technocratic because it has to be kind of handled at the expert level rather than the political level i wonder yeah. how does norway ensure that its interests are represented at the eu level and scrutinize legislation that or- originates in the eu but applies to norway Norway has chosen a different path to the UK, has chosen to cooperate more closely with the EU, for example, in a climate policy area. And uh, one reason for this is that Norway aspires to be an international climate leader, uh, like the UK, uh, like the EU as well. But at the same time, Norway is obviously a major producer of oil and gas, and the country has solved this paradox, uh, promoting solutions that work well on a global scale. So it means that reductions in greenhouse gas emissions doesn't have to happen domestically. Instead, uh, a country can finance emission cuts abroad or trade emissions. So this reliance on what can be done in other countries has made it attractive for Norway to cooperate more closely with the EU. As was already said, Norway is a rule taker. 
and uh, and therefore it doesn't participate in the decision-making bodies in the EU, neither in the uh, council configurations, the European Council, nor in the European Parliament. So in that sense, it doesn't sit at the table when major decisions are being made. This doesn't rule out influence. The EU is also somewhat attentive to Norwegian concerns. And Norway has a delegation in Brussels that's very active and get, gets also a lot of informal uh, information and in that sense has networks and so on as listening points and also contacts. So there's a lot of things going on informally that are uh, enabling Norwegian governments to, to have influence on what is going on. What is important to keep in mind is that this is for the government. It doesn't work in terms of the uh, population because the population is not being activated and kept abreast with developments in, in Europe as would be the case in EU member states. I should also add that the um, Norwegian parliament is is hardwired to work uh, to deal with EU issues as if they were foreign policy issues, whereas, for instance, the other Nordic states are dealing with the EU issues as if they were internal issues, and therefore they have a much higher level of scrutiny and so forth because they are participating in the decision-making process. If you think about the Danish uh, Europe, uh, European Affairs Committee, for instance, it uh, based before European Council meetings, it instructs the government, the head of government and so on, what they should be doing in Brussels, and then they debrief them when the meeting is over. In Norway, the European Affairs Committee is basically only a, a forum where the minister briefs the committee. There's very little real debate. There has been some debate on specific issues, but not to the anything near the magnitude you find in, in EU member states, where the whole political system is activated and, and has to have a view of, of EU issues. Thank you both for those few points. So giving us an overview of the uh, some of the, the dynamics at the domestic level, the political dynamics, uh, just a, a short follow-up here. Does this mean there's little contestation around EU issues domestically? I think that if you look at domestic politics in general, I think there are a few of the real veto actors who has had the significant incentive to change the arrangements with the EU. But uh, there's also this this frail situation. It's a frail compromise, uh, and this fragility is important to keep in mind. As in some sectors, the EU is a is a topic uh, that's politicized uh, to some extent. And then there's the question whether this unrest in specific sectors might develop to be large enough to actually change the current situation. So it's a question now. I think whether these um, instability, if you could say, or this unrest related to increasing electricity prices. Uh, could this be strong enough to alter the current arrangement with the EU? Uh, or is this sense of solidarity with Europe, which has grown uh, a lot with the war in Ukraine, uh, be a stronger counter push? Um, yeah, so there are different forces pushing in different directions. I, I think what Merete is saying is very important and also very uh, up to date. And I think this reflects that the, the situation that we might be in now on the brink of a, of a different type of, of dynamic um, because there are important changes. If you look back at the historical backdrop, it is actually very interesting that the EU or the issue of Norwegian EU membership was most likely the most contentious issue in Norway in the post-war period. My favorite question is, what Norway in what Europe? 
And I think that question should have been addressed, but it's not being properly addressed. And this is a major lacuna. Uh, so it's in itself a, a democratic deficit. So it's not only a democratic deficit in the affiliation, but in the lack of debate on where we are and what is happening to us. So I think, so it's a double democratic deficit in that sense in, in this type of affiliation. That's very interesting. Uh, Chris, do you think that there's anything that the UK can learn from Norway in respect to the EU? Yes, I mean, a huge number of things that the UK can can learn from Norway. And what, one, I think, is that the debate seems to me just to be much, much more reasonable in Norway. Now, I'm sure Moretta and John Eric will disagree with me about this. But, um, you know, when I compare it with the, 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 the UK debate, that that often seems to be so factional and, and tribal and often seems to misrepresent and even slander the European Union. I, I, mean, I can't help thinking that, that, that in Norway, there is a, a willingness to listen to the other side, whether that is the other side within Norway to, you know, to that which one, one is backing oneself or whether it is to European Union opinion. That is certainly also seen, but I think the proviso I would make is that when issues are um, on, when issues come to the fore in terms of requiring political decisions, then it is likely to to uh, degenerate into trench warfare, which we have seen during the referenda debates. So what we have seen in Norway is a bifurcated type of debate where you have reasonable debate on fairly limited uh, issues and so on in between uh, periods when when there is no need for a specific decision to be made. But if if the broad issue of sovereignty and, and membership come 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 up, then the sides are, are being uh, mobilized and we have the fear. So for me, actually, the, the I think an interesting puzzle here is how does Norway uh, leave from this depoliticized situation that we have now and actually engage in discussing membership in a reasonable manner? Because we, we have discussed other smaller issues and so on in a reasonable manner, but can we now discuss the broader issue my fear is that since we haven't had a real debate about this, it is really easy to fall back into the trenches again. For the UK, it seems to be the op- op- opposite challenge, namely how can you depoliticize this without people feeling disenfranchised and fe- feeling estranged by the political class, basically. So it seems to me that these are the two types of challenges. They do go in different directions in this sense. But I mean, they would meet in the sense of how do you actually go from a highly contentious issue to deal with issues in a reasonable manner. Hmm. Uh, All very interesting. Uh, Chris, turning back to you, I know that you've been working or thinking about non-membership. What conclusions have you arrived at? We could imagine a country signing up to almost exactly the same policies as the European Union, the full members have. I mean, the UK might even be an example of that. Remember what Ivan Rogers said um, that the UK, by the time it left the European Union, had developed a kind of single market only membership, a single market only membership. So the UK had all of these opt outs, but it was clearly, clearly committed to the single market. Now, you could imagine the UK leaving the European Union and then joining the, joining the European Economic Area, which means, in effect, that it's rejoining the single market because the European Economic Area consists of the institutions that are needed for a non-member to take part in the single market. So you can, you can imagine a country like the UK going from membership to non-membership, yet still participating in much the same policies. Even if that happened, even if that happened, there would, however, be a huge difference between being a member and not being a member. If you are a member you have a veto on future treaty changes. And even more important, perhaps, than that, 
is that the European Union works on a day-to-day basis by through the active cooperation of the member states. So all of the other member states have to try their hardest to accommodate any one member state on a kind of daily basis. Now you lose that if you're no longer a member. So just turning turning to Brexit and its impact, the Norwegian model was cited very approvingly by supporters of the Leave campaign in the UK during the referendum and after. Did you ever think that it was a realistic post-Brexit model for the UK and, and do you think that Norway would have actually welcomed the UK in the EAA or, or, or after? I mean, to some extent, I guess we were hoping that the UK would, um, I, I confess my bias in this, uh, that in order to, I mean, to, to stay within as, as much of the EU framework as possible to, to prevent the upsets or, or the uncertainties that would ensue from this. Um, I think this was a sentiment also echoed by the Norwegian government. It, it regretted the fact that the UK took this move and it, and actually wanted the UK to have a stable relationship. But the fact that Norway has, and the other states to some extent, have depoliticized the EU issue me- means that it's much smoother sailing within these types of bodies than it would otherwise have been. But it's clear that the deeply politicized UK would bring up its own concerns to these types of forums. And they are not very well designed for doing so, because you do not actually interact with those that are making the rules, and you are still on the rule uh, taking side. So this would be an awkward situation for all, I think, in that time of circumstance. That, that's really that's really very interesting. And, um, and, and I can see how that would, that would sort of challenge um, the, the the you know the operation of these of these of these bodies, um, but when you when you heard how the Norwegian model was being represented in the debate, did you think yes, you know, they captured exactly what the, the Norwegian model means? No, I mean I think um, uh, this was the Norwegian model was shorthand for the uh, mode of affiliation. For, and, and actually, it was also boiled down to the EA agreement normally. And as I said initially, uh, this is a much more comprehensive arrangement, with which is covering um, foreign security policy and, uh, and as Mareta was saying, uh, energy and so on. So it's a much broader form of affiliation. And what I think was completely um, left out in the UK debate was the socioeconomic factors and the political factors. And we have touched on some of the political factors that the political culture you have of a society, and also the socioeconomic model. And on this, you have an interesting discrepancy, namely that Norway is part of the Nordic model. And the Nordic model understands itself as a distinct model of socioeconomic cooperation, which is sort of based on tripartite cooperation, where the state is operating together with peak associations among employers and employees to work out a kind of regulated uh, labor market and and therefore strike uh, agreements and so on to have a more... To, to prevent social dumping and and uh, it's, it's much more social democratic model basically that you have in the Nordic states. So, so a, very, a, very, a very different model. Um, just just thinking about the the border relations because the comparison was made um, for this reason because there was a sort of perception that you know the, the, the Norway's border with the EU worked more effectively. But Norway's inside the single market, but not the customs union. What does that mean for cross border trade? I think it means less actually than for Norway than it would have meant for the UK. Because the UK, for instance, has a number of auto plants and so on that are dependent on getting access to the EU market, and they import parts from other parts of the world. We don't. We have much more of a resource-based economy. Certainly, there is paperwork and so forth needed in in terms of. Uh, not being inside of the customs union, but it's not as deleterious to the economy in Norway as it is to the would be to the UK. Now, maybe fisheries would be a kind of an exception because fisheries was not part of the um, EA agreement and still isn't, but there are some arrangements and so on. And of course, in order to uh, basically what, what happened was that Norway was 
compelled to, to export fresh fish and not processed fish and therefore lost most of the uh, processing jobs uh, for the European market. These were exported to Denmark, Germany and Poland. So, so this changed somewhat the, the internal dynamics in the fisheries sector. Mm, very interesting. Marissa, you want to make a point here? Yeah, the car industry and uh, obviously the transition towards a low emission society, uh, batteries are extremely important. So I just wanted to mention one example where Brexit has had uh, an effect. Batteries produced in Norway and exported to the UK via the EU uh, now post-Brexit has to pay an extra or an additional customs duty. And in some cases, this additional uh, customs duty makes it more attractive to establish uh, battery factories uh, in Sweden, for example, rather than in Norway. Uh, and this has been a big issue in Norway. So the additional custom duty is added due to the rules around country of origin and uh, yeah, in the trade and cooperation agreements, which defines Norway as a third country. Very interesting because I think that some, you know, the, the, the effects that uh, Brexit has on third country, countries aren't really um, aren't, very, aren't very well understood. I just wondered how closely the UK referendum and the Brexit negotiations were followed in Norway and, and whether Brexit had an impact on the terms of party competition or on, uh, on, on public opinion. And if so, has that changed since Brexit's taken place? We looked at this um, a year ago or so and found, I mean, there, I think there is a significant interest. There was a significant interest in in, uh, in the Brexit process in the UK uh, it, and it, it was followed and was reported and so on. So I think, and, and we were summoned to talk about this and uh, so there was quite a lot of public uh, interest and engagement with this. For now, when it still is uncertain exactly what kind of model will, will come out of this, I don't think this has much purchase in Norway in terms of, of uh, generating um, momentum to, to move in the same type of direction. I think basically the popular, popular opinion reflects this, that is solidified on, on maintaining the status quo. How have Norway's relations with the UK and the EU changed since Brexit? Um, Retta, you've been working on this um, subject. Uh, yes, uh, a colleague of mine, Faye Foster, and myself have studied this uh, trilateral relationship between Norway, EU and the UK. There was a lot of worries prior to Brexit and uh, also... Uh, general climate policies are widely regarded as being susceptible to weakening or reversal because they target powerful vested interests. And because of this, we expected to find that at least some larger disruptions in energy and climate sectors uh, because of Brexit. But we were surprised uh, to see how stable this relationship has been post-Brexit. Uh, Norway was, for example, worried about losing an ally with similar positions within the EU institutions and the consequences that this might have on the policies. In the UK, there were concerns that Brexit would weaken environmental standards. And another example is that all sides have been concerned about how to ensure cost-efficient trade of electricity when the UK would no longer be part of the European energy market. But in general, uh, the new trilateral relationship has been surprisingly stable. John Eric, you've worked a lot on external differentiation. Uh, could you tell us perhaps a bit about that concept and its value for comparing the EU's relationship with third countries, especially its neighbours um, who do not aspire to be membership? Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between external differentiation and external differentiated integration. And if you look at the small states, for instance, uh, Andorra and so on, who are adopting the euro, this is a case of external differentiation. They are basically uh, latching on to EU provisions and so on, but they have no reciprocity. 
They have no assurance that the EU will be abiding by their interests or taking their considerations into account. This type of reciprocity is what you find in the EEA, so that you have rights against the other members because you are included and part of the whole uh, community. This, so it's not a one-way system in terms of the, the rights and obligations. There you are part of the club in that sense. And that's the interesting thing about this. So that's why the integration aspect to this is so important. And I think this is also what sets the, the EEA, especially, um, apart from the other ones. I mean, in that sense, there is a certain reminiscence to, to the enlargement process. Probably that also why some people talked about this as a sort of a, a temporary resting point towards membership, because it does include, it, it does involve a type of, of inclusion and a reciprocity that is important. We are operating inside an agreement. We have some leverage or wriggle room in terms of uh, shaping the ongoing uh, incorporation or, or, or adoption of rules, but we have no say on the basic framework within which this is taking place. So that's also in that sense, a limited form of integration in the broader scheme of external differentiated integration. But it, in a world of states, I think this is probably the most in inclusive you could find. Thank you. Um, I mean, some scholars have focused on the formal rules uh, as key to the different relations. Uh, you've drawn attention to domestic coalitions. Uh, perhaps can you tell us a bit more about what you mean by that phrase uh, and what its added value is? Yeah, I mean, this was part of this, um, of, of what was said about the uh, depolitization, de the fact that uh, all governments will be coalitions and that um, I did try to, to deal with the contentious issue by taking away, removing from the political agenda, the most contentious aspects of these issues so that you can go on with business. And in that sense, the Norwegian political system functions. One thing that is also interesting in this is the issue of trust. And and I think that's a that's a very probably understudied issue in 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 terms of these relations because um, Norway is marked by an extremely high trust in in government and in in the public administration especially because we have a competent administration so so that's also part of this in terms of the governing coalitions that you have a competent administration that is ca capable of solving problems so that. Um, you can also have measures to compensate for the type of issues so that the, 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 the coalitions that are struck and so on, they can carry these out in a relatively effective manner. What that actually means to society in terms of its political debate, in terms of its self-understanding and so on, is not well studied or known at this stage. Do we, for instance, in terms of election campaigns, do we have focus on the real issues or does it gravitate towards those issues that politicians know they can do something about? This depolitization and removing contentious issues off the agenda, I think this also happens somewhat automatically because of, because of the affiliation. Uh, because Norway is not an EU member, there's this internal drive is lacking. So the Norwegian parliament doesn't have to decide on, uh, on a certain legislation, uh, which the other member states have to decide on. Um, so it's on the political agenda in the EU member states, but not on the political agenda in Norway. So that way, these issues remove themselves off the agenda, so to say. They, um, they just don't even show up before much later, uh, the moment when well, it's already been decided on in the EU. Norway is obliged to transpose and implement these, this legislation, but it's already too late to influence the, influence the policy. And at that stage, some issues 
tend to get somewhat politicized. Very well, thank you. Just going back to the to the point around external differentiation, um, Eric, Don Eric, do you see any necessary connection between internal diverse, diversity and external differentiation? In the EU context, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because, as uh, Bartolini has been pointing out, the EU is not a state and therefore doesn't have central institutions that are capable of controlling boundaries in the same way as a state does. And the EU's own internal fragility makes it much more vulnerable to external pressures. So the weak center itself, I think, makes boundaries permeable, makes for more inclusion, but it also means that in that sense, it is much more likely to import difference and differentiating impetuses from the outside. So I think that this is... uh, in this circumstance, when you don't have the type of capacity that a state has um, to offset issues and so on, then this will be uh, the case. Because for me, the, the whole debate about differentiate, differentiation in the European Union, for instance, is one that uh, is closely related to the fact that the European Union is um, uh, built by law. And law is the least flexible in terms of, of accommodating difference and diversity because of, of, of its genetic code of, of uh, equal treatment and so forth. So the fact that the European Union doesn't have the same capability to throw money at problems and so on means that it has to bend the rules or alter and make exceptions to rules or even the structure in order to deal with contentious issues. A state uh, has more flexibility by by uh, uh, using policy means and, and fiscal means and so on to suck up the, the, the type of pressures and, and to, de- to address the, the problems uh, and actually also sometimes address the problems at the root. You mentioned earlier that um, you thought the UK, some parts at least of, of the UK, hadn't quite understood that for the, for the EU it was a question of uh, polity. Um, uh, in, in the negotiations over Brexit. Do you think the EU has changed its approach to its neighbours, its European neighbours in light of Brexit? I think it has. I think it has. I mean, the first thing that struck me when uh, the Brexit negotiations started was that the it seems to me that the EU was handling this as if it were a state. Because when I looked at, for instance, the Canadian state would have dealt with the issue of Quebec separation, there was a clear parallel to how um, Canada would have organized this to how the EU did, so that the European Council gave the instructions, set down the procedures, and the Commission did the negotiations, and the member states were consulted, but they were not, there was no scope for bilateral negotiations. It was the European Union that confronted the uh, UK. So even if this would be, I mean, this was a mixed agreement and so on, and, and the member states were included and had to be included in all the things in the European Council and all this, it still could operate as one face. So it was a bilateral form of negotiations between the EU and the UK. And my initial hunch um, on, on June 24, 2016, was that the EU was divisible and the UK wasn't. And what I have seen since is that the EU has proven rather indivisible, whereas the UK has proven to be possibly quite divisible in this. So that seems to me to be a very different type of, of dynamic that I had expected in this. The EU has shown greater intransigence in the negotiations with Switzerland than, than I think also the, many of the Swiss expected. So I think the EU has firmed up its stance to third countries. The, the fear also our failure on the part of the EU is, is feeding into this because it was also an existential issue. But I think once they had set down the framework and they divided the process in two stages, and in that sense actually uh, was able to, to 
commandeer the process with the UK and put the UK quite on the defensive. And also the fact that the UK wasn't able to strike bilateral deals with a number of the different member states put this on a very different track. And in that sense, gave the EU the upper hand, at least during these types of negotiations. And that type of, of experience, I think, has firmed the EU up in that sense. I agree with what has just been said, that uh, the Commission's conflict with Switzerland and Brexit have both uh, constrained uh, Norway's scope to carve out exemptions from EU policy. And the battery uh, example uh, is one example of that. Uh, But looking at Norway's situation, I think that the challenges related to European Green Deal might be much larger. The speed at which the European Commission is pushing through its green agenda makes it difficult for Norway to influence outcomes through the traditional channels because it it happens so quickly. Uh, And I also think that the cross-sectoral nature of the European Green Deal makes it more tricky for the country to unpack which parts of the European Green Deal are relevant for for Norway uh, as part of the European Economic Agreement. And this cross-sectoral nature probably also makes it harder to protect areas of national competency, such as agriculture, uh, which become entangled uh, by being covered by various parts of the European Green Deal. So suddenly agriculture policy is integrated via the climate policy part too. It's important um, to take up Dorek's point about the fragility and vulnerability of the European Union, even though it is able to act as a block negotiator. Now, I, I know that it's a cliche um, that there should be no cherry picking um, and you should only be able to have the benefits of membership if you are prepared to pay the costs of membership. But there is something fundamental here about the nature of the union because it's a non-state political system. It is basically a club of states that provide club goods and club goods depend on being able to exclude, to be able to exclude others from enjoying the benefits without incurring the costs and accepting the rules. So it is is just structural to the European Union that it it should um, act as a block negotiator and not not allow outsiders to reach agreements that um, uh, allow them to have the benefits without the rules. I mean, the, the European Union is not is is not trying to drive a hard bargain here. It's not trying to dominate anyone here. It is simply responding to the basic logic of its own um, political structure, which is that it is a non-state system that is trying to provide club goods for multiple states. And again, I think there was another very important point you made about the, the role of law and especially the role of law in the model of of single markets that the European Union has created. What is the single market? It's it's about trying to remove behind-border barriers to trade. That requires some kind of a convergence of law, or if you're using the US system, it requires kind of policy competition between states. But if you say that's not going to be available to the European Union and you need to have some kind of system of shared law, then a, a, a single market European Union style is necessarily a huge undertaking in shared lawmaking. So you then have to have all of the other policy features that go with that. And um, you, 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 you find that it's, it's impossible to say that you, can, that you can participate in a single market if you're not prepared to accept the idea that you will not have full control of your own laws. Just if I could add, um, the fact that the uh, member states are so imbricated in the EU decision-making institutions actually makes for an interesting paradox in this because of what uh, Wolfgang Wessels has been referring to as fusion. The 
it means that the member states lock themselves into this. So there is very little wriggle room um, inside the internal market. So when you talk about the external differentiation or internal differentiation in the EU, it's normally not in the internal markets area, but it is in the other policy areas under in foreign security and so forth. So, so this is also that something about the European Union being a kind of a lopsided political system. So it's not a an EU level versus the member states, but it is the fact that the member states are themselves implicated in the whole system. So yeah. it's 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 a much again, more com- complex kind of system, actually. Yes. And, again, I think this is this is a crucial point to understanding um, the EEA and to understanding the nature of membership itself. Um, sure, to be part of a single market, you have to engage in a massive undertaking in shared lawmaking. But all of that said. The member states do retain a huge level of influence over that shared lawmaking. And there's all this data about voting in the Council of Ministers that shows quite clearly that most of the time the Council of Ministers decides without voting at all. It tries to get the highest possible consensus of member states. And even when it does vote, it's usually just one or two member states who vote against the majority. So although there is this heavy burden of, of, of making shared law that is necessary to have a single market in the first place, each member state does retain a high level of control because the, the system as a whole aims for a high level of compromise and consensus between the member states. And it must do that because it's the member states that implement. So there could also be, of course, uh, flexibility on the ground, as we see with the way directives yeah. are formulated, yeah. because they are formulated as objectives where you have leverage to find the proper means and so on to ensure that there is some kind of flexibility. So when we talk about uh, differentiation in the European Union, it's imperative also to look at how this is being implemented, because there is mm-hmm. more diversity on the ground than might appear yeah. from the legal provisions. So how far that can be replicated um, in a relationship with the European Union, if you're not a member, I suppose is a difficulty. I mean, maybe maybe there is quite a lot of scope for replicating all of that in the case of Norway and the EEA, because Norway does take part in all of the expert committees and all the rest of it. And there is this, this spirit of compromise at the, at the national level that perhaps makes it easier to make compromise at the European level too. I mean, in, 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 in the UK case, it, would, it, would it be able to, to um, as it were, reinsert itself to the process of, of compromise, compromise building, even as an ex-member, as a non-member? I, we, we have all of us, I think, um, had our doubts about that. Well, that's a nice note on which to, uh, to to look ahead. And this is the part the part of the interview or the part of the podcast where I ask you to sort of gaze into your crystal ball. How do you see EU-UK relations developing? Um, do you think that um, Emmanuel Macron's idea of a European political community has has any mileage? And um, you know, Martin Westlake has outlined a number of different possibilities in his book. Do you see any of those as um, as being sort of possible destinations? And and how quickly? How soon? If at all. I guess there's a very strong argument, isn't there, for a security relationship, that the two biggest security providers in Europe are Britain and France, um, and it's it, it's a big difficulty that the UK is no longer in the European Union and part of the, of the CFSP. Um, more broadly than that, though, I, I think there is just a general argument for more sovereignty pooling in the world in which we live, that we live in a world of complex interconnectedness between democracies. I mean, what's, what, what's the common theme over the last 15 years or so? One crisis after another. Um, the, the, many of those crises are the result of a kind of complex international system of multiple 
fragile forms of, of interaction. You've had the financial crisis, migration crisis, the COVID crisis, and now, now the Ukraine crisis and food crises and so on. So, you know, there's just a huge um, amount of common shared problems that require at least cooperation, let alone integration and perhaps even the use of some elements of shared law. So you can, you, you can see the huge pressures why the UK um, and the European Union should get together into, in, into some kind of form of cooperation, even if the UK is no longer a member. I'd, I'd like to um, think about this maybe as a... Uh, Two, two different scenarios. One is, as Chris is saying, the functional pressures are such that they uh, induce people to to do so. That, of course, requires some kind of of reduction of the political tensions uh, and the fallout and the and the sentiments that uh, uh, are still there lingering and the bitterness and so on in many quarters about Brexit and and so forth. That's certainly a possible um, scenario. The other one would be. Uh, two possible two-tracked forms. One is that you have the UK operating at different speeds, for instance, and in somewhat different directions. With especially Scotland moving in in a different direction. If it doesn't move towards independence, it certainly would like to have a closer approximation to to the EU, um, EA, or something like this, if that's ever possible. So it, one could also think about potential for sort of. If not formally speaking, a differentiated, certainly a politically differentiated type of UK on on and in different nations in the UK approximating uh, or approaching these issues differently. The other one, which can be more insidious, but as more likely is also a two-tracked one in terms of the fact of, of functional interdependence, meaning that there is a lot of proximity, officials are collaborating and so on, and a lot of things are happening under the radar. And that that the the current close bonds and so on between the EU UK are retained because of the need for collaboration and businesses working to do so. And you will see a lot going on under the radar in terms of, of ensuring that there is a lot of convergence and this is not being spoken about. And then you will have some of the issues that are politicized. And then the question, of course, what type of politicization dynamics do you find? What actually triggers them? What is it about different frames? Is it about sovereignty? Is it of strong emotional symbolic value and so on? And to what extent do they link to policy? To what extent are they basically symbolic battles? And to what extent are they specifically picking up on policies? And uh, and that would make the situation unpredictable. And depending on on how broad uh, these types of dynamics will be in terms of various types of issues and, and who engages and, and so on. So that seems to me to be a volatility in the situation. So I think there can be two logics going on at the same time on this. And of course, it also depends on, on the dynamics in the EU itself, to what extent the EU is appeared or, or, or seen as being accommodating. And then you have the mediatization on both sides and to what extent uh, that is, is helping to give a sort of a more sensible uh, imprint on this or whether it is... Um, and whether it's amplifying scandals or, or picking up on on certain issues and so on, and uh, driving its own mediatized type of, of sensationalist type of, of of dynamic, which is much more difficult to to deal with in this type of circumstance. And what do you see in terms of the future development of relations between Norway and the e- and the UK? In the climate and energy areas, I think that even if Norway and the UK continue to take radically different approaches towards the EU with uh, the UK having left the Union and Norway choosing to cooperate more closely with the European European Union on climate policy, I think that the relationship between them will remain stable because they share a lot of similarities. Uh, Like both countries share common views on EU climate governance, uh, both liberalized their power sector early 
Uh, they're connected via gas and electricity infrastructure, and they both see themselves as climate leaders promoting uh, cost-efficient solutions at the global level. So I think there are good reasons to expect a continued good relationship between uh, Norway and the UK in these areas. I'd like to add a bit. I mean, of course, I, I guess this might also be to some extent influenced by who is the new leader in the UK um, who takes over after Johnson. Maybe, um, I, I mean, I don't think this has a significant bearing on Norway-UK relations because I think they are generally good. And uh, of course, Norway would never do anything to intervene or interfere in domestic UK issues, for instance, on Scotland and so on. So there's, I don't think there's anything to fear on that count. Um, I think both parties also want to, to have relative, stable uh, mutual relations because, of course, there were concerns um, when Brexit unfolded that we would be in a squeeze in between the EU and the UK. So far, I don't think in a, in a broader scheme of things that this, this is happening, but it depends also on the, EU, the UK's trajectory. But maybe, maybe uh, this change in government will make that type of situation easier. This is obviously crystal ball stuff, but I mean, it, it, it occurs to me that the 2019-2023-24 parliament, wherever, how, however long this parliament runs, might be kind of peak, peak um, Euroscepticism. This might be kind of peak Brexit. Um, it, it, the Conservative Party may well struggle to get huge majorities like the one it was in 2019. I could even see the British, any any British political party having having some difficulty getting 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 an overall majority. Um, so you know we may well be moving into a, a form of politics that is going to have to be based on more compromise. Uh, between the different parties, between kind of leave and remain, insofar as those tribes remain with us. And there'll be generational change as well. Remember, of course, how lots of people who voted for Brexit were older people, um, young people didn't. Um, so, you know, we may well be moving towards a new kind of a political system or at least a, a, a set of political alignments. And we may be moving towards a, a, a new economy and a new society, a new generation, people who, who, who will respond to the need for some kind of a working relationship with the European Union in a rather different way to, say, um, re-smog. On that note, Chris, <laughs> that's, that, that's, our, that's our closing observation. Thank you so much, uh, Chris, John Eric, Moretta, for what's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Good Neighbours.